All right, ready for God's Word? All right, today we're going to talk about greatness. We're in Luke 22, 24 to 34. And uh, as, we, as we think about uh, greatness today, kind of like the way that um, the world measures greatness is in, like, how many Instagram followers do you have? Or how many Facebook friends uh, do you have? We measure greatness, really. Oh, that guy must be really great. Look how many likes and shares he got. And uh, we, we think in terms of, in a more global scale, we think about uh, people on the Forbes list of the wealthiest or People magazines. Who, who's the greatest? Well, according to People magazine, it's, these are the most beautiful people uh, in, in the world. If you think about politicians, it's uh, the greatest people are those who get the most votes or those who have the highest approval ratings. Uh, we judge a person's greatness on what college they attended and whether or not they got a cum laude, any one of the various cum laude's at the end of their degree. We look at great athletes who are surrounded by the trophies that they've won. For the entertainment industry, there's award season. It's not enough to have one award. You have to have an award season. There's the People's Choice Awards, and there's the Golden Globes, and then there's the Oscars, and celebrities tripping over themselves to tell themselves and repeat over and over again how great they are. And that's the nature of the industry. That's the nature of the society that we live in today. And we eat this all up. We eat up rankings and lists. We, we, we go after this on Facebook. We fall victim to the clickbait in order to find out who's the greatest in any given field. But what if we as the followers of Jesus Christ have it all wrong? What if the way we're measuring greatness is actually the opposite of the way it should be? And in today's passages, uh, today's passage, the disciples get into a heated discussion, verse 24 says, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And unsurprisingly, Jesus breaks into their conversation and he turns the entire thing on its head. And as his followers today, we're going to be challenged as we look at, at that conversation and how Jesus confronted that discussion we're going to be challenged to rethink our own ideas about what greatness really is. And we're going to see what it takes to be great in God's eyes. That's what we're going to go after. So Luke 22, let me read 24 through 34 and then I'll pray for us. Luke 22, 24. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he, Jesus, said to them, uh, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, 
the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Let's pray together. Father, there's no doubt as we um, look at this passage that humility is going to factor greatly in how you define greatness. And so we humble ourselves at the outset to uh, plead with you to speak to us. And uh, Father, even a lyric earlier that we sang that, that we would come to the end of ourselves really put ourselves before you at your mercy to teach us the things that we need to hear, to challenge us in our assumptions. And Father, to continue that work of transforming us to be like Jesus. He is our example. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. And so God, send your Holy Spirit to do what, what only you can do to convince us of the truths we'll hear. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen? All right. When you're great in God's eyes, let's look at this first, you don't even think about being great. When you're great in God's eyes, you don't even think about being great. Now, I'm not saying that ambition, the ambition to be great is, is wrong. I'm not really saying that it's wrong. For sure, Christians who fall into this idea of mediocrity, I uh, read a book uh, by Chip Ingram, Good to Great in God's Eyes, kind of took the title from that book. Uh, but, uh, you know, we can't settle. We can't settle as Christians, for being mediocre, as he says. We ought to be striving for and have the ambition to actually be great as long as, this is the important part, we're defining greatness by God's standard of what that is. And that's actually the point that Jesus is making here. So I'm not saying the ambition to be great is necessarily wrong, but I am saying that even if you desire greatness even the right kind of greatness, it isn't going to be foremost on your mind. Obviously, we're going to find out here that greatness has a lot to do with serving. And so if you are like, you know, I already worshipped one and worked one today. I'm worshipping right now, but in first service, I was aspiring to be great by serving in Harvest Kids. And I was down there just teaching those little kids. And I'm so great because I did it. Well, obviously, missing the point, correct? Or missing the point. If we're thinking about it in that way, it's not going to be foremost in our mind. That defeats the purpose. A truly great person in God's eyes doesn't think about being great. And the problem with these disciples here is they weren't just thinking about it. They're actually talking about it with each other. They're talking openly about and they're ranking themselves as to who's the greatest. And to put a little context around this, there's little doubt that even at this point, with Jesus' death looming, something he had predicted, something they had heard from his own lips, I'm going to have to suffer and die, but somehow had not computed into understanding for them. Somehow they're still thinking about Jesus as the wrong kind of Messiah or deliverer. They're seeing Jesus as this, this revolutionary. And, and so they're thinking that he's coming in, that all this talk about the kingdom isn't so much about the kingdom of God as much as it is about the kingdom of Israel. 
and that somehow Jesus is going to do what they think back in their history 200 years prior to this, that Judas Maccabeus, this famous uh, Jewish revolutionary, had tossed out the Seleucid rulers and had taken over Jerusalem, and they were now functioning independently at that time. Now, 200 years later, the Romans are there and oppressing them. And they're thinking, this is why Jesus has come, that he's the new Judas Maccabeus, that he's going to overthrow the Romans and push them out, and they're going to be an independent country. And so with this in their mind, as the kingdom of God is being inaugurated, they're thinking, how can I get as close as I can to power? I mean, there's just us in this room. I'm looking to get a seat at the cabinet. I want a significant position. I'm going to have the ear of the king. I'm going to walk through the streets and people are going to know that I was part of the group that overthrow, overthrew the Romans. And I'm going to have power and position and prestige and people are going to recognize me for this. There's going to be honor attached to what we've done in overthrowing the oppressors. I mean, they think that he's preaching about a kingdom that's now. And so with this in their mind, verse 24 says that a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Who's going to be the most powerful? Who's going to be in the senior cabinet? Now, in the last message, in the first 23 verses of this same chapter, they had just had the first Lord's table. They were together celebrating the Passover. Jesus transforms it into what we know as communion or the Lord's table. And during the celebration of that, the commemoration of that, Jesus also says to them, now one of you, one of the 12 here, one of you is a betrayer. One of you is going to betray me. And so they start talking. Verse 23, in fact, in last week's passage says, they're talking and questioning each other which of them it could be who was going to do this. So they're, they're having this meal together. Jesus tells them there's a betrayer. They start having a conversation about who the betrayer is. And in the course of the conversation about who the betrayer is, it transforms into a conversation about who the greatest is. In other words, they've started to build their own top 12 list. They're creating a list of first to worst in the 12 disciples. In fact, the list probably looks a little bit like this. The greatest list. The top 12 disciples of Jesus from first to worst. So you know for sure, based on the initial conversation and how this all got going, that the betrayer, who we know to be Judas, he's number 12 for sure. He's the worst. And then you get a sense by what Jesus does in kind of singling out Peter in a few minutes. We saw that in the rest of the passage. That, that Peter, with all of his bravado, and he has lots of bravado. We've seen it throughout the Gospels. Every time something needed to be said, or even if it didn't need to be said, Peter said it. Right? Peter was always the first to speak. And if there were any embarrassing moments for the disciples, Peter was the author of it. And so, so Peter wasn't afraid to speak out. And here he is speaking out again because... Because he believes that he's the greatest. Okay, so as soon as you establish Peter at number one and Judas at number 12, you gotta, you got, now you've got 10 guys who are trying to work out where they all fit in the ranking. Okay, am I number two or am I number 11? Where, where am I going in this, in this ranking of these 12 disciples? And 
I mean, they're just in an upper room. They're all together. There's, there's only 13 of them there. And Jesus hears the whole thing. He's listening in on this whole ridiculous conversation, just like, <laughs> we forget this. He's listening to all the times we compare ourselves to people. He's listening all those times we're ranking. Well, I'm better than that person. At least I'm not as bad as them. Because we're constantly ranking ourselves. Gives us some comfort to know where we land between first and worst. And so Jesus listened to all this, just like he listens to us. Verse 25, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. So he's just like grabbing this example out from the, the political world of the time. And he's saying, you know, they're, 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 your kings, your leaders, they're benefactors, but also, they're also lords. They're benefactors in the sense, well, let me explain it this way. It's 2019. We have a federal election coming up in October. And let me tell you, the federal government is going to be a benefactor of yours in the next few months. Okay, they're going to open the checkbook. They're going to start doling out checks to all the writings. They're going to be letting you know how wonderful they are and funding all kinds of projects so that you will forget everything else from the past four years and just remember that they're benefactors when you go to the polls on October. That's that, I'm not making any partisan statement about this federal government. Every single federal government does this prior to an election. They're your benefactors. They're trying to curry your favor. But the reality is, the first part of this, they're exercising lordship over you. In other words, they're still in charge. They're still number one in the ranking. And they're just manipulating you through all of the nice things they're doing, all the public service they're performing, all of the infrastructure projects that they fund. And Jesus drops this on them as if to say, it's not about power and position and manipulation. If that's the way you're thinking, you got it all wrong. You ought to stop thinking about being great in the way political leaders think about being great. Now, here's the challenge for us as, as we think about this. Ever since the 1970s, and it's so pervasive in our culture today, I mean, it's just endured for 40, 50 years now. But ever since the 1970s, we've, we've been dealing with this self-esteem movement that tells us we're great even when we're not. Tells us you can do it even when you can't. And it's pervasive in every school and it's pervasive in our homes and in our parenting. And so we're so hardwired in the Western world now to think of ourselves as being great. And we've been caught up so much in the culture. And we measure greatness with all the wrong criteria of power and influence and wealth and beauty. And our culture is saturated with this messaging. And we need to get it out of our heads. As the followers of Jesus Christ, we need to get it out of our heads and not even think about it. Because when you're great in God's eyes, look at this next, you eagerly take on the lower rank and task greatness for christ is the lower rank it's the lower task we're not looking for the spotlight we're not looking for recognition we're not looking for compensation 
Jesus actually calls it out, verse 26. He gives his little example in verse 25. And then he says, but not so with you. I mean, we so often look exactly like the prevailing culture around us. And I get, we have to live in the culture and there's certain things that we can take upon ourselves of the culture. We have to live in the culture. We have to be in the world. But we shouldn't be of the world. We shouldn't allow uh, the culture to pull us away from Christ and, and the principles that God is teaching us in his word about how we're supposed to live. And again, our lives are saturated by this. And Jesus is saying, that's the way the world does it, but not you. Instead, we ought to be seeking, and I've always loved this phrase so much by Phil Yancey. Philip Yancey says that we need to be living as the followers of Jesus Christ, a radically, radically dissimilar life. We have to be living a radically dissimilar life than the people around us, the culture around us. And if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, the life that you're called to live is more often than not a 180 degree turn from the prevailing culture around us. And so here it is. He lays it out. Here's not so with you. Don't do it that way. You're going to do it this way instead. Verse 26 continues. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Now we're talking about the greatest and the leader becoming like, like the youngest and like a servant. So he uses two illustrations here. The youngest one in the family is the one with the least standing. The youngest one has the least standing. The, let's say in a family of three, the firstborn and, the, and, and that uh, dreaded middle child, they, they, they've been around for a while. Uh, they had to do all the errands. They had to run to the pantry a thousand times before the youngest one ever showed up. And so when the youngest one shows up, it's like, uh, you need to go now and you have to do the bidding because you have the lowest standing. And so um, when dad comes into the room, uh, the youngest gets out of his chair. Why the youngest is even in his chair is puzzling to me. I'm not saying that I'm working out something that might be happening in our home right now. I'm just saying, just, just an example. Don't read anything into it. You see, and that's what Jesus wants from us. This lower, st- we have to take this lower position. The leader in a top-down culture, which is what the culture around us is, is a top-down culture. The leader in a top-down culture gets served by the people that are beneath him or her. Other people do things for leaders. The leader says, actually, this is like a quote. The leader says, well, I'm not going to do that. I have people. I have people who do that for me. And Jesus says, not Christian leaders. That's not, that's not leadership by the book. Other people may in fact do things for you if you're a Christian leader, but, but you never think you deserve it. You never think you deserve it. So it's not coming to you by, by, by rank or position or power or authority. Okay? You never think you deserve it. And it's never beneath you to do it yourself. You see, that's critical to Christian leadership. And to the humility that we're talking about here. And so this, this is the point of Jesus asking them in verse 27. Notice, for who is the greater? The one who reclines at table, remember they're at a meal. 
So he's setting them up here. For who's the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it the guy throwing the party or the, or the caterers that he brought in, the chef that he brought in? The people who are going to come in and clean up afterwards. Who's the greater person? It's the person at the table, reclining at the table, who's hosting the party. Even the guests are greater than the people who are serving. That's the way the world thinks about it. That's the logical conclusion. And that's what he says. Is it not the one who reclines at table? And they'd say, yeah, of course it is. The one who's being served, that's the leader. That's the greatest person in the room. And Jesus says, and we're turning that on its head. That isn't that we don't have leaders. Obviously we do. It isn't that Christian leaders don't have people who come alongside and help them and do things for them. But it is that the Christian leader, listen, just a quick list of things here. It's that no Christian leader thinks that he or she deserves it. No Christian leader holds on to it too tightly. No Christian leader takes advantage of it to lord it over people. No Christian leader sees it as a status symbol or as a ladder climbing thing. Instead, the follower of Christ eagerly takes on the lower rank and task. And if God or God's people esteem him or her to be a leader, then that is held with great humility as a gift from God. You eagerly take on the lower rank and task. All of that, in fact, has at at the root, I've alluded to it a couple times already, humility. And then we get into this classic battle that exists between the humility that God wants us to have and the pride that just naturally wells up inside of us as human beings. And we're right there now in the midst of this battle, the classic struggle that we all face between humility and pride. But listen, you'll be great in God's eyes. That's what we're trying to lock our hands onto here. We'll be great in God's eyes if, notice this next, you pursue greatness as Jesus did. No argument that Jesus is the greatest, amen? No argument that Jesus is the greatest. But he pursued greatness with humility. And he set himself as as the example when he said this. This is the latter part of verse 27. But I am among you as the one who serves. Again, they're at the table. And he's just said, who's greater? The one who's serving or, or the one who's reclining at table? He's reclining at the table. And yet. What he's been doing for them, and Luke doesn't get specific about it, but he's actually been serving them throughout the night. He should be reclining at table, but instead he's pouring himself out for them. And this is just the start of it. He's about to be falsely accused and crucified. He's going to really pour out himself for them in service and for us. You know, we start to see the humility and the servanthood of Christ. And, and when, you, when you think about those themes, the humility and the servanthood of Christ, there's like one passage that comes to mind, and I'm sure you're thinking about it as well. It's Philippians 2, 3 to 8. Now I want us to see this. Let's look at this, this verse, these verses. The Apostle Paul writes this. Do nothing, do nothing, 
from selfish ambition or conceit. We can't let pride well up inside of us at all or motivate us in any way toward anything. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I mean, here we're getting the secret to a happy home. Here we're getting the secret to a strong marriage. Husbands, consider your wives, what does it say? More significant than yourselves. Wives, consider your husbands more significant than yourselves. Parents, consider your children more significant than yourselves. Children, consider your parents more significant than yourselves. This applies in your small group, on your serving team, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your extended family, with every friendship you have, and even with your enemies. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's okay to take care of yourself. You should. But not to the exclusion of serving others. Have this mind among yourselves. Think this way, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, though he is God himself, though he is divine in every way, did not count equality with God, did not count the fact that he is God to be a thing that's grasped. Not so tenaciously hanging on to his divinity that he was unwilling to serve us in humility. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And what the apostle writes here, it's, it's, it's like a commentary on, on the incident in Luke 22. It's like you can take what we're reading here in Philippians 2 and lay it right on top of Luke 22 and you see Paul just drawing off under the inspiration of the Spirit. He's just drawing off and commenting on what we're seeing in the gospel. And it's coming into perfect clarity for us. The example that Jesus is setting, the kind of service that he's requiring of his followers, the standard by which we're to be giving ourselves for one another. His death on a cross becomes our death. His humility becomes our humility. His servanthood becomes our servanthood. Though he's, he is the son of God, he sets that aside. Though we may have some status or some position, we set that aside in order to serve, in order to achieve the true greatness in God's eyes. Have this mind among yourselves. Think this way. Don't think the way the world thinks about these things. Don't think the way your flesh is telling you to think about these things. Have this mind. Pursue greatness, but, but do it the way Jesus did it. Now, when you do this, 
There's a benefit that comes off of it. It isn't all just do this, do this, do this, and it's all sacrifice. God's ready to flood some awesome things into our life as a result of living in this way. And and here's what happens. When you live this way, when you pursue greatness with humility as Jesus did, you settle the big issues of life. The reason why we, we go after, in our humanity, the reason why we go after greatness is we're trying to find significance. We're trying to find meaning. We're trying to, to feel fulfilled in life. And so we run after all the different things. We try to get as high up on whatever list is important to us. We try to get as high up as we can on that list in order to feel something. So we think that, you know, this relationship or gathering this much money or having this much power or gaining this kind of esteem or having this position, that's going to do it for me. And the thing is, King Solomon told us 3,000 years ago that wasn't going to do it for you. In fact, he, he, he wrote this. This is in Ecclesiastes uh, 2, uh, 10 and 11. He just said, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. He's King Solomon. He's like the smartest guy around. He's got untold wealth. And he gathers whatever he wants to himself to try and find fulfillment and satisfaction so that he can truly declare himself to be the greatest king of all time. And somehow Solomon just fell short of it throughout of his, his entire life. And, and Ecclesiastes is like his journal and he's writing that out for us so that, so that we wouldn't fall down the same trap. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I went after all of it. I kept my heart from no pleasure. All was vanity. Some of the other translations say all was futile, all was meaningless. All was empty. All was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon pursued greatness his own way for his entire life. Why wouldn't we hear that as a, as a warning to us? I mean, what, what, will, what will you and I do? Will we pursue greatness as Jesus lays it out for us? Or are we going to go after the ways of the world to find the big questions of life answered? The reality is if we pursue greatness the way Jesus lays it out for us, these big questions, this this wondering that we have inside of us, this, this wandering that our feet pursue, all of that, if we pursue greatness the way Jesus tells us, all of that's going to click into place. Click, click, click. It's all going to click into place. Do you know the three big questions? Anybody study... You like the big words. Some, of the, some people like the big words. You ever study existentialism? Philosophy? Some of you don't want to be reminded that you studied that. It is, it is existentialism is trying to answer the big questions of life. In fact, everyone loves a chart. Let's have a chart. Look at that. The big three questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? Every human being wants those questions answered. And whether they articulate it this way or not, every human being is pursuing the answer to these questions in one way or another. In fact, Soren Kierkegaard said this, where am I? Who am I? How did I come to be here? What is this thing called the world? How did I come into the world? Why was I not consulted? 
And if I am compelled to take part in it, where is the director? I want to see him. Does that make sense? Is that where you're coming from? A lot of people could articulate it that way. And if, if we can answer those questions, then we start to lock down, back to the chart, big three, the big three categories. Our identity, our purpose, our destiny. Again, this is what everybody's looking for. And this is exactly what Jesus addresses as these disciples are trying to figure out who the greatest is because they think fulfillment is coming that way. They think they're going to answer the big existential questions of life by being the greatest, by being part of a conquering kingdom, by shooing out the Romans, by being close to King Jesus. As a worldly Messiah, their concept of him, that's not the way it's going to come. So Jesus answers their question. And look what he says in verses 28 through 30 now. This is the first thing he says. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. You want to know who you are? It has nothing to do with a ranking among yourselves. It has to do with the fact that you follow me and that you've made it to the end of this phase of the journey that you've endured all the taunting and all the criticisms and, and, and you're going to endure even more going forward. You've heard all the teaching. You've seen all the healings. That's your identity. You're a follower of mine. And beyond that, because you follow me, you're an overcomer. You're enduring through everything. That's identity. That's who I am. Then, then he says to them, and, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. My father sent me here to proclaim the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is like. This was the message that Jesus preached. And he says, and that's just not my message. That's your message. You're a part of that kingdom. And your mission in this world is going to be to tell other people about my kingdom. And to invite other people to be part of this kingdom. You want to know what your life is about? This is what it's about. You want to understand why you feel a dissonance in the world? Why you feel like you don't belong here? Why nothing seems to make sense down here on planet Earth? That's because it isn't supposed to. And because you don't belong here, it's because your heart is with another kingdom that is yet to come. And then he says to them, that's their whole purpose identified. And then he says that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Remember, they're sitting down to a meal right now. This is what they've been experiencing. And now he's talking about Something in the future, in, 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 the, in the full expression of the kingdom, there's going to be this awesome meal that they're going to share together. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You wonder what your destiny is? It's with me. And it's, it's beyond this world. In something that's, that's unimaginably great. Now listen, this is, this is what everyone's wondering about. If you don't know Jesus Christ, and you're here today, I mean, largely this message is speaking to Christians, but if you're here today and you haven't yet turned your life over to Jesus Christ, whether you've ever thought about it in these terms or not, all of your pursuit of the world is really to try and figure out these questions. And whatever you're running after, whatever you're grasping for, it's going to come up empty. 
It's vanity. It's meaningless. It's only in Jesus Christ that we find the answers to these questions. They're all answered in Jesus Christ. And I hope, church, we never get tired of hearing that. Because all the other words that are spoken here, all of them ultimately just come down to two words. It's the only thing we preach. Jesus Christ. We have no other message. We have no other gospel. There's no other way to achieve greatness but Jesus Christ. Amen? And you're never going to be satisfied with what the world offers and what you can achieve. It'll never be enough apart from Him. So the questions are all answered in Jesus. And finally, look at this. When you're great in God's eyes, you recognize how hard the battle will be. Now, in the midst of the argument about who's the greatest, uh, Peter makes this, Peter, Peter makes this bold declaration in arguing for his status as the greatest among them. I mean, this whole thing isn't just Jesus kind of throwing this in as an extra. He's responding to what he's hearing from them in this conversation. And so in verse 31, as Jesus is hearing them work through the ranking, and, 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 and to Jesus, it's pretty obvious that Peter is seeking to insert himself into the number one spot. And so Jesus takes him aside and says to him, Simon, Simon. Why does he call him Simon? I mean, that was his original name. That's his birth name. But all the way back in Luke chapter 9, there was this whole thing where Jesus says, oh, what are people saying about me? Who do people think that I am? And some options were thrown out. And then Peter, Peter, comes and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He makes this bold declaration. He says, you're the anointed one from God. Right on. He makes the right declaration. And in that moment, Jesus turns to him and says, and this is actually recorded in Matthew's gospel. He says, you're not going to be known as, as Simon anymore. From now on, you're going to be Peter. And he changed his name at this bold declaration. And, and throughout the rest of the gospel, from that time on, Jesus calls him Peter. Until this moment. So, so, so what's with, and Jesus is really just taking him back saying, you know what, you know what's going to happen right now, Simon? You're going to regress all the way back to when you were Simon. Before you made that declaration, before I changed your name, before I set the trajectory of your life, before you found me, you're going all the way back to start. Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. That he might violently shake you. That he might rock your world. So that he could have you for himself. Jesus is alerting him to the failure that's coming in his life. Peter, for his part, had made this bold declaration in verse 33 that he was willing to go to prison and to death for Jesus. And in fact, Jesus tells him in verse 34, you're going to deny me. 
I mean, you're going you're gonna to deny you even know who I am. Three times you're going to deny me. Peter, who made this powerful declaration. Peter, who, who boldly stepped out of the boat and walked on water. Peter, who is invited to the transfiguration to see the glorified Christ. Would say, and this is looking ahead to verse 57, I do not know him. But in verse 32, Jesus said to him, I've, I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. And sometimes we say that to each other. A lot of times we say, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. Here's the thing that if I say I'm going to pray for you and I pray for you, you have no idea if my prayers are going to be effectual. First of all, you don't even know if I am going to pray for you. Second of all, you don't know if my prayers are going to be affected because you don't know if my prayers are according to the will of God. Here's what I know. If Jesus says I'm going to pray for you, it's going to be according to the will of God. Does that sound about right? I want, I want Jesus praying for me. And if Jesus says he's going to pray for me, then whatever the thing he's praying for me for, that's going to happen. And so Jesus says to him, I, I have uh, prayed for you that your faith, not his belief, not his trust, okay? This is faithfulness. This is his loyalty. Okay? I have prayed for you that your loyalty or your faithfulness might, may not fail. And Jesus is praying for him. So I, I would say at this moment, if I didn't know the rest of the story, that that, that prayer was going to be answered, that he wouldn't fail. And then Jesus tags this on to know for sure. And when you have turned again, when, when you have turned again, not if you've turned, not if you've repented, not if you've been restored, but when that happens, strengthen your brothers. You still got a mission and a ministry ahead of you. You're still going to make impact for the kingdom. And it's so comforting that Jesus would give him this. So much hope because Jesus is letting him know several things. First, you're going to be a colossal failure. There will be a full restoration of that and you will minister to others on the other side of it. Now we could step back from this and just go, you know, that was just a Jesus Peter thing and this doesn't apply to us and, and, and there's nothing here for us to see except it's just super interesting what happened to Peter. And we could conclude that except there's something that's not immediately noticeable when we're reading our English translations. And, and, and you might think that at this point, I'm going to tell you in the original Greek, which you know, most of us don't have any access to, and actually what I'm going to say to you is that if you were carrying a French Bible, you would see this. In fact, in, for all the grammar nerds here, if, if, you, have, if you have any inflected language, because English is so obscure at times, it's so obscure and so uh, not precise enough. And, and so if you're, if you're reading in, in French, you're going to notice something about the pronouns. When Jesus says, Satan demanded to have you. Remember, he's talking to Peter individual, but then he says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. He's using the plural form of you. English is so boring, we couldn't even think of a second you word for the plural form. Use, I guess. <laughs> Use guys. <laughs> en français, vous au lieu de tu. OK? 
Okay, did everybody catch that? Some people caught that. Vous, au lieu de tu, in other words, the plural form of you instead of, instead of, instead of the singular form. And, and so here's the thing. We see this as a Peter issue. But if you cheat a little bit here and go over to Mark's gospel and see the same, the same incident, Mark 14, 31, they all said the same thing. And as all of them said, I'll go to prison for you and I'll die for you. And Jesus is addressing that. Satan, Satan was messing with all of them and, and Peter just becomes the poster child or the spokesperson for denying Jesus. But after Jesus' arrest, they all scattered. Mark fourteen fifty says, they all left him and fled. So listen, this is about all of us. This is, this is the plural you. This is about all of us. We, we can't be naive about the battle we're in as we try to change our thinking about what constitutes being the greatest. This, it's so hard to grasp because we're talking about themes of greatness and, and humility and servanthood. And it's so counterintuitive to who we are. can't let our guard down. Our walk with Jesus cannot be about pronouncements and declarations. Oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. I got baptized. We pronounce these things. I have this position in the church. I'm this important. It's not about the declarations that we're making with our mouths. The evil one is intent on disruption and, and, and destruction in our lives. And he wants to get every one of us to the place where Peter is, where we're denying we even know him. You say, I could never do that. I'll go to prison for him. I would die for him. And then, and then we deny him. We deny him in a thousand little ways. We don't even think about it. We find ourselves in a place where there's just a little compromise, a little, a little cheat on our taxes, a little income that we're not reporting, a little glance at something we shouldn't be looking at, a little ranking of myself. I'm, uh, well, at least I'm better than them. And we deny Jesus when we do it. I, I deserve what I have. I've worked hard for this. I, I have this because I did it. Denying Jesus. I worked harder with that person than that person. That's why they don't have it. You're denying Jesus. You're denying even know him. We have the opportunity placed right in front of us to, to speak to someone of Christ, to invite them to come and, and see what God is doing. And we don't do it. And we deny him. I don't even know who Jesus is. We fudge a little bit on our, on our gift. It's the early part of the year. I, we, we have a lot of bills due. We've we, we got to kind of pull back on our giving right now. And we deny Jesus. We know we're doing it. We make excuses to not be in worship. When we could be. The battle is raging. And those who are truly great in God's eyes recognize it. And, and lean hard on the Holy Spirit for their strength. That's what it means to be great in God's eyes. I'm going to pray for us. And um, 
and we're going to sing. And when we sing, the best way to get our eyes off of ourselves is to sing of the one who is truly the greatest because there's none like him, amen? There's none like him. Let me pray for us. Father, again, um, I pray that in this room there would be um, just such a willingness on the part of those who have already trusted you to, um, to truly humble themselves in this moment to be repenting of those things that need to be repented of. All the times when we exalt ourselves and, and thinking ourselves better than anyone else around us. All the times when we have denied you in the ways that we've mentioned and, and in a thousand ways that we haven't. And so God, truly, truly hear our hearts right now. We Uh, submit ourselves again to pursuing greatness the way that you would have us pursue it. And no doubt for those that are serious in the room right now, I just know you're going to put opportunities in front of us this week to humbly serve, to pour ourselves out, to consider others better than ourselves. Help us to be like Jesus, to have his mind as our own. Father, that prayer is for the believers in the room, but no doubt there are some in this room who have not yet given their life to Christ. And even as we talk about the pursuit of identity and, and, and purpose and destiny, God, I would just pray for those in the room who are still trying to answer those questions in the world and by pursuing the desires of their flesh. God, that they wouldn't leave here today without surrendering to you and seeing that Jesus Christ is the answer to every one of those questions. So Father, seize their hearts. Help them to see their need of Christ. And hear our voices now as we lift them to you and declare from the bottom of our hearts, there is none like you.